we pray that as we come to you uh, this day, we know that there are all kinds of people in this service that have needs, and I don't know what all the needs are, but I know there are a lot of needs that are common to all human beings, and so we pray for those who are sick. We pray for those who are going through very difficult times. We pray that you would especially be with them. I pray for those who are preparing to travel perhaps this week or in the coming weeks. We pray that you give them safety, and for some who may be traveling today, we pray that you would be with them. We pray especially that you would be with our government as you've taught us to pray for those who are in leadership and authority, and you've placed leaders over us, and not always those that we agree with and some that certainly need your work of your spirit in their hearts. We pray for them today, so we pray for the government that we have. We pray for our president and vice president. We pray you'd be working in their lives um, and in those in the Supreme Court and in Congress. We pray for them. pray that you'd be working in them. For those that need to give their lives to you, we pray that they would. We pray as well that you would give them wisdom in making the decisions that govern our country and our people. So we pray that you'd especially be with them. We pray for those who are serving you in other places. I pray especially for missionaries, missionaries that we know here that this church supports, uh, missionaries in other places and parts of the world. Um, as they seek to minister to others, as they seek to, to help others with their needs and to give the gospel to others, I pray that you would fill them with your spirit and that you would work in their lives. And for those who, who need support or are still raising support, we pray that you would provide the finances that they need. And then as we come to you this morning and looking at your word, I pray that you would open our eyes so that we would see the things that you would have us to see. I pray that as I speak, you would give me the words to say, the things that would be helpful for all of us, and I pray that all of us would leave changed this morning as we go out in our separate ways. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is from Colossians chapter 1 and verses 1 through 8. Colossians 1, 1 through 8. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. May God bless the reading of his word. This past year, I taught at Covenant Academy in Macon, which I have done for a number of years. And one of the assignments that I have is the cross-country coach. I really like running myself, and um, I have, for the last five years, been coaching the cross-country team. Now, this last year, there was one student at the end of the season who was assigned, I suppose, to come to me and to get an article for the school newspaper. And so he came to me, and he asked me a particular question. He said, what makes the perfect cross-country runner? Well, I thought about it for a little bit. He said I, I could write it down if I wanted to, write a little thing up and give it to him later. So I thought about that. My response was, no one is perfect. There are no perfect runners, but the ideal runner uh, would be, 
I think characterized by at least three things. First of all, uh, they would be somebody who loves running. They would be somebody who is self-disciplined in practice. And they would be somebody who works hard even when it's very difficult or even when it's uncomfortable in a race. They're going to continue to work harder. And so I gave him my response. Now, I think those things are things that would mark out somebody who is a really good cross-country runner or you could say even a good road race runner. Um, somebody that has those traits. Now, there may be other characteristics. I know there's some people who would say, well, I run to stay in shape or to get fit, to lose weight, um, or because I've got a friend who's running or maybe a friend who's on the, on the team, and so that's why I'm running. And those things may be true, but those aren't the essentials of being a runner. There are certain marks, certain things that would make you a, a good cross-country runner. Now, I was thinking about that because I was wanted to apply this to the Christian life, and I was thinking uh, there are certain things that mark a Christian. And in fact, there should be certain things that mark out all Christians, certain things we could say these are the marks of a Christian. Now, the Bible regularly teaches this, and there are different passages in Scripture that will, that will give us various marks of being a Christian or things that will characterize Christians. Uh, you can think about the Beatitudes that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5. He gives a number of characteristics of Christians. People who are following him will be characterized by these things. Um, as well, you can look at... Uh, Paul, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, he lays out the fruit of the Spirit, and he says there are certain things that will characterize people who are believers. If you're a Christian, uh, this is what you're going to look like. Uh, James does that in James 1, verses 22 to 27, and on you could look at 2 Peter 1, 3 to 11. Peter gives things that are characteristics of a Christian, things that will, uh, we could say are marks of someone who's really a believer. Now, Paul does that, I think, at the beginning of this, of this letter that I've just read this morning in Colossians chapter 1. He begins this letter written to the church at Colossae, but we notice that in the introduction, he's really giving things that uh, mark out a Christian. It's not just a description of the people at Colossae, which it is, but it also tells us things uh, that all Christians should be. And so that's what we'll look at this morning. What are the marks of a Christian, according to the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1? Now, it's kind of difficult sometimes to just jump into a letter without knowing a little bit of the background. So for Colossians, I just would give you a tiny bit of information about this. Uh, the book of Colossians was a circular letter, which meant that it would be sent to the, to the Colossians and then it would be sent to other churches in the area. So whether they copied it and sent a copy of the letter to someone else, it would be read in the church and then they would have sent that letter to other churches in the area and they would have read that letter of Paul's as well. It's very similar, secondly, to the book of Ephesians. If you've ever compared Colossians Ephesians, a little, it's a little shorter. But in some ways, the second half of Colossians is almost identical to Ephesians. Some of the same themes are there. Uh, some of the same instructions and commands are given in both of those books. And then finally, uh, the purpose of the letter really was to give encouragement, first of all, but also to, uh, to warn or give instruction about some false teaching that had arisen. Now, already at this time, uh, there was the teaching known as Gnosticism, which said a number of different things about Jesus Christ that, that weren't biblical, that wouldn't be true at all. Uh, that was one of the things that Paul seems to be getting into. But he's also addressing in this book um, what we might call asceticism or a false asceticism. There were people in the church that began to identify Christians by what they didn't do. And many times it was things that they gave up, things that weren't necessarily even wrong. Now, obviously, if you read the Ten Commandments, there are things that Christians don't do. 
But they had defined, were beginning to define all of Christianity or Christian by being people that don't do this and this and this or that give up all these things. It may be giving up certain foods or giving up marriage, giving up certain things that were good things that God had created. And they somehow began to feel like uh, this was a very spiritual thing and this is what a really good Christian did is he would give up all sorts of things um, and that's what made you a Christian. Now, my wife and I grew up in uh, a circle of churches in some ways uh, that was a little bit like that. At least some of the churches were like that. They wanted to identify you constantly by what you didn't do or by certain things that, that weren't you. Uh, so, for instance, somebody who is a Christian is going to be somebody who doesn't smoke and they don't uh, drink alcoholic beverages and they certainly don't go to movies. And if you're a guy, you don't have any facial hair, which I wouldn't be doing very well with that right now. Uh, if you were a, a girl, you didn't wear pants. And all of these were defined, they were defining Christianity by things that you didn't do, and very often things uh, that the Bible doesn't even address, either specifically or implied. Um, and so there's always, I think, a tendency to do that, and all of us may do that. We may have a tendency to say, well, uh, Christianity is about not doing this, or about not doing this, or this, or this, or this. And so the people in Colossae had apparently fallen into that, and so Paul's going to address that later on in the letter. But even at this beginning of the letter, I think Paul begins to give instruction with regard to that by describing the church in Colossae, what they had been from the very beginning, and in so doing, giving us what are really the marks of a Christian. Not necessarily all these things you're giving up or you're not going to do, this sort of asceticism, um, but these are the things that are going to characterize a Christian. And so I want to look this morning at just four things that I think Paul teaches us in this passage about what marks out a Christian. <clears throat> now, after gre greeting the believers in verses 1 and 2, which he regularly does, he immediately um, says that those who are Christians or the Christians in Colossae are people who have faith in Jesus Christ. You can notice that in verses 3 and 4. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Now, clearly this is given at the beginning because this is the mark of one's entrance into salvation or the kingdom of God. We enter the kingdom of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 4. He said that we are justified by faith in Christ. It's not by the things that we do. He pointed out that even Abraham in the Old Testament was not saved by works. He wasn't saved by going through various rituals like circumcision, even though that was commanded. But he was saved by faith in Jesus Christ. He was justified by his faith, not by what he did. And so if you're a Christian, it is because you are trusting in Jesus Christ. People in Colossae were people who were trusting in Jesus Christ for their salvation. Uh, they were people uh, who had realized, like Paul said in Philippians 3.9, that they needed a righteousness outside of themselves. That there is no righteousness in us. We need something outside of ourselves. And so Paul says in Philippians 3.9, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, because that's not good enough, but having a righteousness which is from God by faith. And so Paul says uh, he thanked God because they had faith in Jesus Christ. And that marks out a Christian. They have faith in Christ. And that's why, why even Jesus says in the Beatitudes, in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 3, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's those people who realize that we don't have anything good to offer to God. We don't have any works that are good enough uh, to, to endear ourselves to God or to justify us before God. It is the people that 
that come to God poor of spirit and say, I need Jesus Christ. And so Christians are people who have their faith in Jesus Christ and his substitutionary death on the cross to pay for their sins because they couldn't do it. And so he says, uh, you are people who have faith in Jesus Christ, and that's going to characterize anyone who's truly a Christian. Now, you might say, well, of course that's true. Of course that's true. All, all Christians need to have faith. But I think even in the church today, there's always a danger of losing that. And throughout the, the history of the church, there have been people and there have been uh, groups of people who have begun to think, even though they know about the cross, they know of the scripture, they've begun to think that somehow salvation um, is something that they earn or something that comes through various things that they do. And so you'll, you can go back to the time of George Whitfield. My wife and I were reading a biography of him recently. Uh, he preached a sermon one time on the marks of a, of a Christian. And he said, speaking to very religious people, he said, some of you are trusting in having your name in a register, you're members of a church or being part of a certain denomination or you were baptized uh, as a child. And so you're relying on that for your salvation, but that's not what we rely on for salvation. If we are Christians, we're relying totally on God. We're relying totally in Jesus Christ. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. I remember when we lived in Lansing, Michigan, uh, there was a girl that came to talk to my wife and I about being married in the church. She wasn't part of the church, but she wanted to have her marriage ceremony there, so we talked to her for a little bit. And I asked her if she was a Christian, if she was a believer. And her first response was, oh, I was baptized when I was a baby. And I went on to try to explain, but it's not really about that. It's about trusting in Jesus Christ. And three times she said, I was baptized when I was a baby. Well, she was a person who grew up in the church, and yet she was a person who didn't understand that salvation was by faith in Jesus Christ. But that marks out a Christian. That's how we enter the kingdom of God. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, these other things uh, may be fine and things that have been commanded, and certainly we do baptize. But that's not something that is a mark of a Christian, that that's what saves us. What marks a Christian is that is a person who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, we aren't ones who are trusting our works for salvation, but you're ones who are trusting Jesus Christ for salvation. Now, the second mark that he gives is that Christians have a genuine love for other believers. Christians have a genuine love for other believers. Now, notice what he says in verse 4 and then again in verse 8. He says, in thanking God, which is what this is at the very beginning, he says, we thank God for hearing of your faith and of the love that you have for all the saints. He says, Epaphras, then, in verse 8, has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So he says, one of the things that characterizes you as believers is that you have love. And in fact, Paul is very encouraged by that. He knows that they're believers because they've been transformed. They have this supernatural love. And so they have a genuine love for other believers. Now, uh, certainly they should have a love for people who are not believers as well. But that's not what Paul focuses on here. He says, as a Christian, as Christians, you have a genuine love for other people. And again, that's not just a mark that's given here. You'll see that throughout the Bible. Uh, go back to Psalm 16, for instance. Um, David, who was called a man after God's own heart. In other words, he loved God more than anything else in the world. But notice what he says in Psalm 16:3. After he says, God is my refuge, and I have nothing good outside of God, he then says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. 
In other words, David was a person, a man after God's own heart, who said, I love other believers. I love other saints. People who are the holy ones. Those who have been set apart by God to belong to him as well. So I love other believers. And again, Jesus taught this. In teaching his disciples in John 13, 35, he said, By this will all men know that you are my disciples. By what? By the stuff that you don't do? By the love that you have for one another. So he says, people will know that you're my disciples. And even that's even something that's going to show the gospel to other people. When people can look at Christians and say, see how they love other people. Look at how they love each other. And when they gather around each other and they help each other and they serve each other, that's something that's going to be a testimony to the rest of the world because Christians are marked out by love. And if we're truly Christians, we're going to love other people. So that's a mark of somebody who is a genuine believer. And that's not just members of our own church or our own denomination. There are all kinds of other people who are genuine believers in Jesus Christ, and we love them as well. Because they're people whose faith is in Jesus Christ. Now, um, I'm part of the, the Presbyterian Church in America, as this church is. And I love the Westminster Confession of Faith, and I think the doctrine is very important and very good. But even where there are other true Christians uh, who may uh, disagree with us on various things or certain minor things, those are still our brothers and sisters in Christ, and so we love them. And we want to display a genuine love for them as well. I can think of a lot of, of people in history on people that I know who I can see this genuine love that they have for other people. Uh, one of my favorite people who's still living, uh, but in all of history, and particularly is a man by the name of Brother Andrew. And I don't know if any of you have read his story. It's in the book called God Smuggler. Uh, a really a fascinating story of how God worked in the life of somebody else. But Brother Andrew was somebody who had a deep love for other people. And when he became a Christian, he began to love other people uh, to an extent that uh, sometimes even shames me because I think I don't love people quite that much. He was a person who risked his life um, taking literature and Bibles into communist countries and other countries where Christianity was illegal. He would drive into these countries uh, risking his life to encourage them and tell them that there are other people in, in other countries that are praying for them and to give them Bibles. And in fact, he loved people so much that when he was traveling in Russia and found that even the Russian pastors, most of them didn't have a Bible of their own. He decided he was going to go back and he and his wife prayed about it and they were ready to sell their house, which was completely paid for, to mortgage it in order to have Bibles printed in Russia so they could take those back to those pastors. Now, that's somebody who really loved other people and certainly loved other people more than he loved himself or even other things. Um, I have a, a friend who's in Michigan, and even though we've been gone there for quite a while, uh, he calls me on a regular basis. And he always just calls and asks me how I'm doing and if there's something he can pray for me about. Uh, so it may be something r really significant, like Brother Andrew, or it may just be something simple, calling people and saying, um, I'm concerned about you, or I was thinking about you, and I want to pray for you. Is there something I can pray for you about? Uh, but it's a love that's exhibited by Christians, and it's not going to be the same in all of us. All of us show love in different ways. But as Christians, we're going to be marked out by the love that we have for other people. That's a mark of somebody who's a Christian. So we, we should ask ourselves the question, do we genuinely love other people? 
Do we genuinely love other people? It's very easy sometimes to be involved in the church and do a lot of things in the church. Um, and sometimes, if we're not careful, our motive might be to, to get praise from others or maybe approval from others, uh, to make an impression on other people. But we should ask ourselves the question, do I genuinely love other people? Do I genuinely want to serve that person? Do I genuinely want to help them because I'm concerned about them? Because that is the mark of a believer. The third thing that Paul gives us, um, and this is in verse 5, is that Christians have a future hope in heaven. Or we could say a Christian's hope is in heaven. Now Paul tells the Colossians that when they heard the gospel, he says this in verse 5, they heard of the hope that they have in heaven. Now when Paul uses the word hope, uh, you have to understand he's using this in a particular way that's not always the way that we normally use it. Sometimes I will say, uh, for instance, that I hope that the weather will be good tomorrow because there's some things that I want to get done outside the house. Well, I don't know if that's going to happen or not, especially in the summer in this part of Georgia. You never know. It could be a thunderstorm any time. But I could say, I hope that the weather's going to be good. I don't know that that's going to happen, but I hope it is. But the word that Paul uses here means something that we expect. It's an expectation that we have, something that's actually sure but we haven't experienced yet. It would be a little bit like you're at a job and you've been promised a raise, but the raise won't take effect for three months. And you're not hoping you'll get a raise in the sense you're hoping that maybe they'll decide to give you one. That's already set, but you're looking forward to it. You're expecting it. And so when Paul says they have a hope in heaven, it's not, it's not the idea that I hope I'll go to heaven. I've been to funeral services in particular churches where the person is being prayed for by the various ministers and so forth, uh, and basically, I sure hope they will get to heaven. And that's not what he's talking about here. Paul is saying your hope, that is your surety, what you look forward to, is in heaven. And that is eternal life with Jesus Christ one day. And so that's what Paul is talking about. Now, they would have heard of this, and Paul said they first heard of this hope in the gospel. Now, the, the gospel is good news. And it's the good news that if we put our trust in Jesus Christ, all of our sins are taken away and we can live forever with God. And as the Westminster Confession says, we can enjoy him forever. That's the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, And that was something that would regularly have been part of a gospel presentation. So think back to John 11 uh, and when Jesus was talking to Martha just after her brother had died. What did Jesus say? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, will live. And he who believes in me will never die, he goes on to say. In other words, you'll live eternally with me. That's the hope that's in the gospel. Not only are your sins taken away, but we can live forever with God and fellowship with God, which is what we were created to do from the very beginning to begin with. So Jesus said, as a part of the gospel message, you have a hope in heaven. Paul preached that other places as well. If you go to 1 Thessalonians 4, Remember when Paul was addressing Christians there, he was talking to people who were afraid that somehow those Christians who had died were going to miss out on the kingdom of God. And, and so they were sorrowing in, in some way. And Paul says, well, we don't need to sorrow. We don't have to sorrow as unbelievers who have no hope because we have the hope of a future resurrection. One day Christ is going to come back. Those people who have died in Christ will be raised from the dead. All of the rest of the Christians on earth will be caught up with Christ. And so we have that future hope. That's our expectation. We know it's going to take place. We know it's going to be. But we haven't seen all of that realized yet. And so as Christians, one of the marks of a Christian is that our minds are set on things 
um, that are above, as he also talks about in Colossians, that we're looking forward to that hope that we have in heaven. Now, why does Paul say this? Is it so that we, we will be, as some people say, so heavenly-minded that we won't be of any earthly good? Well, no. If we are people who really love other people, we have to be concerned about this world as well. But Paul gives this, I think, for a couple of reasons. First of all, if we don't, if our hope is not in heaven, we'll be tempted to tie all of our joy and all of our happiness and all of our peace to things of this earth. So whether it's houses or cars or vacations or, uh, or money or finances or whatever it is, or even simple things, just simple enjoyments that we have. If we're not careful, we can set all of our joy in that, and we can look for all of our joy in that, and our hope won't be set in heaven. And if we do that, we're going to waste a lot of time living for the wrong things. We're going to invest way too much time in things that don't matter. And so as Christians, our hope is set on heaven. And of course, uh, that changes even how we view the rest of the world, because we want to share the gospel with others. So they also can have hope in Jesus Christ, and they can enjoy fellowship with God forever in heaven as well. And that's going to change how we live. And so Paul, I believe, says, your hope is in heaven. And the reason he's, he's reminding them of that is that you don't want to set too much, too much stock in what's here. Yes, God has given us all things here richly to enjoy, as Paul says. All kinds of good things God has given us here. But we don't want to set all of our joy on those things. We're, we have a hope in heaven that we're looking forward to. And the second reason I think Paul probably says this is because if we go through difficulty, or when we go through difficulty, or even persecution for the sake of Christ, if we don't keep in mind that our hope is not here but in heaven, we may become discouraged. Um, Job understood that. Job was a person we know in the Old Testament went through terrible times. Things I can't even imagine going through. All of those things. But what got him through that? Knowing that, well... In a few years, all this is going to turn out better. Well, Job didn't know that. It did turn out better here on earth. But Job didn't know that. What did he say? He said in verse 25 of chapter 19, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. So he said, My body will be destroyed here. I may go through all, all kinds of terrible things, but he believed in the resurrection. And he said, I know that in my flesh one day I will see God. And that's what got him through that. Now, persecution is another thing that that helps us to get through. The author of Hebrews uh, talked about people in the book of Hebrews who had gone through all kinds of persecution. They were, being, they were suffering quite a bit. And Paul is saying, don't give up. And in fact, he said in chapter 10, of verse 34, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. In other words, he said, you lost, these Christians lost property. Their property was confiscated because they were Christians. They were persecuted. And they lost all the things that they had here on this earth, but they could joyfully go through that. Why was that? Because they said they had a more abiding hope. That was somewhere else. Uh, as, as he says of Abraham, Abraham was looking for a city whose found, builder and foundation was of God. And so... It wasn't just this world that he was tied to. He had a hope in heaven one day. And so that's what he was looking forward to. And so the mark of a true Christian is one who looks forward to the resurrection and eternity with Jesus Christ. Now, I love the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. I think 
it describes what is the hope of all believers. It says, the question is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins, and therefore by his Holy Spirit he also assures me of eternal life. And that's what all of us are looking forward to. Um, if you're a Christian, a believer, one thing that marks you out is that everything's not tied to here. And you can enjoy things here, but your hope is in heaven. Your hope is somewhere else. The fourth thing that characterizes Christians, or we could say marks out Christians, as Paul speaks of, is that Christians continue to grow and bear fruit in their lives. Christians continue to grow and bear fruit in their lives. In verse 6, Paul says that the gospel is bearing fruit in the whole world. We read that a moment ago. But then he says it's also growing in you, in you who are the Colossians, in you who are Christians. Um, And so he praises God for that, that they are bearing fruit, that their lives are growing. And that is a characteristic, again, of all people who are Christians. They are people who bear fruit. Now, in the Bible, the idea of bearing fruit, and especially in the New Testament, is the idea of things that result or things that we do as a result of our repentance or our faith in Jesus Christ. Not things that save us, but they are fruits. They are things that are produced by our salvation. And that's why John the Baptist in Matthew 3, 8, when there were people who were coming to him to be baptized, he said, you need to produce fruits in keeping with repentance. In other words, there would be some things in your life that would indicate that, that there is a genuine repentance that has taken place in your life. Now, Paul speaks as well of, of fruit. When he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, uh, gentleness, goodness, meekness. All of those things are fruits. And that is, those are good works that come from somebody who is a believer. So if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, there are certain things that will grow out of that. Uh, there must be a certain change in our lives. And so Paul praises God that there is fruit that's coming out of the Colossian Christians. Because that's a mark of being a believer. Now, that doesn't mean that they were as good as they can be. None of us are going to be. God doesn't change everything in a person all at once. But there will be, in a Christian, a regular growth. A regular growth in bearing fruit. And again, all of us are different. All of us will bear fruit in different ways. But if, we're, if you're a Christian, that will be marked by the fact that you bear fruit. Uh, fruit bearing is not something... That's just a sort of an option, like you go and you buy a car and you, can, you, you get your basic car and then these other options that you can add on. The fruit bearing is not an option. All people who are Christians have been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit and that is going to show itself in their lives. Not in perfection. As the, the hymn we sang, uh, one day, as Cooper said, all the ransomed church of God will be saved to sin no more. And I look forward to that day. Now, that doesn't happen in this life. But there should be a fruit bearing. There should be a regular growing. And that's why Jesus says in John 15:5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. So if we're believers, then our lives will be characterized by fruit bearing. We'll be growing in those qualities uh, that God has begun to work in us. So whether it's growing, as we've already said, in love or growing in patience or, or growing in our, our ability to share the gospel with other people. Whatever it is, Christians will be growing. They'll be bearing fruit. 
That's a mark of all true Christians. They're becoming more like Christ. They're not the same as they were before they were Christians. And they're not staying the same. They're regularly growing in different ways, but they're growing. Now, all of those, those things are marks, and we could say there may be other things as well, but these are the things that Paul focuses on at the beginning of the letter. All of these things are marks of true Christians. Now, as we come to this, we have to apply this to ourselves and say, okay, how does that apply to me? What am I going to do with this? Those are the marks of the believers. How are we supposed to respond? And I think there could be a couple of different ways that you would respond depending on how you are, what your condition is, and, and how you know yourself this morning. A couple of responses. First thing we should ask is, do these things characterize me? Do these things characterize me? Our salvation is not based on works. And we've talked about that. And we've, we've talked about that already. But our These are things that if we're true Christians, these are things that should characterize us, that should mark us out in some way. And so we should should look at ourselves and say, are these things true of me? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves. In fact, he says, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. And that was particularly in the context of coming to take the Lord's Supper with the believers when they were doing that together. But it's right to examine ourselves. You may be sitting here this morning and say, you know, I don't think... I don't think I really have faith in Jesus Christ. I've always kind of felt that I was a good person, uh, that I'm doing all the things that I need to, and I've been part of the church, and so I just sort of assume that I'm a Christian. Well, the mark, the first mark of a believer is that our faith is in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, not anything that we do. And so you need to ask yourself that this morning. Do I have a genuine faith in Jesus Christ? And not as something discouraging, but to look at that and say, well, there's an opportunity this morning to put my faith in Jesus Christ right now. And then I will have, as the Colossians had, that hope in heaven and that love for other people, uh, love for other believers. And these things will mark me out as a Christian as well. But I think all of us, and you may be a Christian this morning, and I, I hope most of you are. There are Christians, believers today. But even as believers, we should look at this and say, are these things growing characteristics in my own life. And I have to to do that. When I think about a message like this, when I think about this passage, I have to think about that. Is my love really growing for other people? Is my faith in Jesus Christ? Is my faith growing on a regular basis? Am I regularly serving people? Am I willing to spend time with others and give of my time to others? Am I growing in love? Um, Is my hope really set in heaven? Or have I begun to to maybe put a little bit too much hope in things of this world or find too much of my joy in things of this world? Or am I looking forward to that time when we'll be with Christ forever in heaven? Is that where my hope is? Or is my hope uh, in earth? Because even as Christians, we can be lured. We can be moved away from what is our our major hope. We may begin to put hope in other things. And we may ask ourselves the question, am I becoming more like Christ? Is my life bearing fruit? Am I more like Christ? Am I more like Christ than I was last year? Are there things in my life uh, that are changing, that need to be changed? And by God's grace, we can pray that they are. Now, the good thing about this is that for a Christian, God is working in this. He's already working in us. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. And so these things, we can grow in these areas. As Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, um, work out your salvation. In other words, live out your salvation, but know that it is God who works in, in you. So that you can do the things that you need to, that you can be growing in these areas of the marks of believers. And may we seek God then for the growth that we desire. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word.
Uh, we thank you for the things you've taught us this morning and perhaps some of the things that we've been reminded of. These things may be things that we know already, but things that you've reminded us of. I pray that you would change us, that you would work in our lives, and that you would cause these things to be in more and more a greater measure in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing hymn 237.